Well, this is a modest talk here that is um, meant to um, heighten your appreciation for being in New England. So let's hope it does the trick. Huh? Last year's Nobel Prize for Chemistry was awarded to Jennifer Dudna and Emmanuel Charpentier for their discovery of the CRISPR technique of gene editing. One of the panelists on the Nobel Committee judged that this new tool has revolutionized the life sciences. It was not an exaggeration. Although the modification of DNA has been a common practice since the 1970s, the invention of the CRISPR genetic scissors in 2012 has made the work fast, accurate, and inexpensive. With the CRISPR tool, engineers have already developed new drugs, modified crops, changed the genetic constitution of animals, and in China, altered the genes of twin baby girls before their birth. To be sure, CRISPR may be used for good or ill, yet even its inventors seem to be aware that by using it, we are courting nothing less than the abolition of man, as C.S. Lewis warned us in his 1944 essay of that title. In addition to its potential moral threat, CRISPR also poses a cognitive one. The age of gene editing may herald the eclipse of biology as a science. Now, the patterns of use of a new technology are shaped by the shared habits of the society into which it is introduced. Take the smartphone. When it came on the scene in 2007, its potential users were already spending half of their waking hours in front of screens, taking digital photographs, and enjoying pre-recorded music. Many of them had already been using pagers or Blackberry-style instant messaging for years. And Facebook, in 2007, already had 20 million users. So this was, the, this was the soil into which the seed of the smartphone dropped, and of course it sprouted. Right? This context makes the smartphone's speedy conquest of our culture easier to comprehend. Now what is the cultural context relevant to the advent of the CRISPR genetic scissors? It is, I would assert, the effective triumph of an extreme form of Darwinism. You could almost call it existentialist Darwinism. You'll see why here. One spokesman for radical Darwinism is Professor Peter Godfrey Smith of the University of Sydney in Australia. In his 2014 Philosophy of Biology, a well-regarded book published by Princeton University Press, so not some obscure thing by some crazy radical, okay, although he is a crazy radical, <laughs> okay, but, you know, uh, something of a mainstream book, huh? Godfrey Smith dismissed the concept of species as being useful for biological inquiry, asserting that, quote, evolution is open-ended. 
He then insisted that we refrain from viewing the current product of evolutionary development as normal or normative. And I quote, if some behavior has an evolved function, all that means is that it has been associated with reproductive success and has been kept around for that reason. The fact that some habit or characteristic is natural in this sense does not and should not prevent us from criticizing it and perhaps trying to change it. That's Peter Godfrey Smith. But from what vantage point are we thus to criticize nature? Godfrey Smith gave his answer in a surprising way by quoting a lengthy passage from Jean-Paul Sartre's 1946 essay, Existentialism is a Humanism. Okay, I mean, this is really how the book runs. We don't talk about species, that's passé. Whatever evolution is presented to us isn't normative or normal. It's in fact open for our critique. But where do we stand in order to make this critique? Answer, long quotation from Jean-Paul Sartre. What did he quote Sartre as saying? Man first of all exists, then encounters himself, surges up in the world, and defines himself afterwards. That's Sartre, quoted by Godfrey Smith. In other words, it is the human will, utterly unguided and unlimited, that stands towards nature as critic, judge, and ruler. At the beginning of the human drama, a person far more devious and clever than Sartre or Godfrey Smith made the same offer with considerably more candor. Your eyes will be opened, he said, and you will be like God. Is the primordial temptation in the garden really being repeated today with a biology that denies that things have natures and dismisses natural limits? Consider as evidence that it is this passage from the Supreme Court's majority opinion in Bostock versus Clayton County, written by Justice Neil Gorsuch. I quote, take an employer who fires a transgender person who was identified as male at birth, but who now identifies as a female. If the employer retains an otherwise identical employee who was identified as female at birth, the employer intentionally penalizes a person identified as male at birth for traits or actions that it tolerates in an employee identified as female at birth." Close quotation. What Justice Gorsuch has done with these words is to affirm that to call oneself a woman is, in the eyes of the court, the same action when performed by a woman as by a transgendered man. This decision of the Supreme Court then supposes that our identity as male or female is up to each one of us. Peter Godfrey Smith's Darwinian existentialism is the law of the land. Yet if that is so, then it would seem that we have acquiesced in transforming biology from a science into an art. For if nature is an open-ended subject for our manipulation, 
And if what biologists do is to imagine what may be made from what now exists and then attempt to make it, then biology is a technological endeavor. And if we look some 90 miles to our east to the banks of the Charles River in Cambridge, we will find an energetic and well-funded practice of that kind of biology. In the face of these developments, students of Aquinas and Aristotle need to remember that biology really is an inquiry into the natures of living things and really can be a science that joins principles to conclusions and offers an orderly and reasoned out knowledge of causes. My lecture this evening will be just such an exercise in remembering. In the lives and work of two American biologists of the past century, we will consider biology's proper beginning in observation and its end in the contemplation of the natures of living things within the order of the universe. That exercise of remembering having been accomplished, we will return to the dilemmas of the age of genetic editing and suggest what will be required if we are successfully to navigate its challenges. Spoiler alert, we need Mike Augros's books to be bestsellers. Okay, that's what we need, okay. <laughs> they are already bestsellers, okay. It was some 30 miles south of here, in Northampton, Massachusetts, that Margaret Morse Nice began to watch birds. She was born in 1883, the fourth of the seven children of Margaret and Anson Morse. Her father was a professor of history at Amherst College, but also a lover of wilderness and a devoted gardener. The family lived on two acres and kept a cow and a horse. In her youth, Margaret tended a flock of chickens and became an intrepid walker, once with a friend covering the 40 miles between Mount Holyoke and Hartford in a single day. Okay, I, I, I want to hear of a TAC student doing that. <laughs> right? I'm, gonna, I'm gonna believe that you're really serious about nature when I hear that somebody's done the 40 miles, okay? She received a liberal education or in any event, an education with a pronounced emphasis on languages, Latin, Greek, French, German, and Italian, were all tools at her disposal throughout her career. At one point, she even taught herself to read Dutch from an interest in an ornithological text published in Holland. As the author of a celebrated study of the Song Sparrow, Mrs. Nice, as she liked to be called, fulfilled Aristotle's conception of the true biologist. And I quote from On Generation and Corruption. Those who dwell in intimate association with nature and its phenomena are more able to lay down principles such as admit of a wide and coherent development, while those whom devotion to abstract discussions has rendered unobservant of the facts are too ready to dogmatize on the basis of a few observations." Close quotation. Having taken a bachelor's degree from Mount Holyoke College, Margaret Morse found her purpose in life when she enrolled for graduate work in animal behavior at Clark University in Worcester. Okay. 
There she met Blaine Nice, a farmer's son from southeastern Ohio who is finishing his PhD in physiology. After a two-year stint as instructor at Harvard's medical school, Dr. Blaine Nice took his family to Oklahoma, where he would teach for the next 14 years. While there, the Nice family grew to include five daughters, four of whom survived childhood. Margaret and her girls were keen adventurers, often rambling on the banks of the nearby Canadian River, and once the family had bought its first car in 1920, exploring the four corners of the state and its lengthy panhandle. The result of these wanderings was The Birds of Oklahoma, co-authored by Blaine and Margaret Morse Nice, and published in 1924 by the state of Oklahoma, which had commissioned the work. By that time, Margaret had resolved, to, as she said, to return to my childhood vision of studying nature and become an active member of the American Ornithologists' Union. When, in 1927, Blaine took a position at The Ohio State University in Columbus, the family sought a home that would have lots of birds in the backyard, and so they settled on the banks of the Olentangy, as Margaret later explained, because of the great weed tangle that stretched between our new house and the river. It's an interesting way of choosing a home, right? We want weeds in the backyard. Okay, I like that. That's really good. Early the next spring, Margaret applied an aluminum band to the leg of the song sparrow she called Uno, the first of over 800 birds that she would band during an astonishing seven-year observational campaign. What spurred her to this mammoth work was her admiration for how Uno established his territory. And I quote, I was so fascinated by this glimpse behind the scenes with my song sparrows that I then and there determined to watch Uno for several hours every day so as to follow the daily course of his life, to find out the meaning of his notes and postures, in short, to discover exactly what he did and how he did it. In particular, I wanted to study the matter of territory, which had been a burning question with ornithologists ever since the appearance of H. Eliot Howard's territory in bird life. Although it was obvious, once it had been pointed out that many birds were territorial, yet hardly a beginning had been made in determining details with various species. We should note the implicitly Aristotelian structure of her conception of science. It begins with a general truth that is readily apparent but poorly understood, and then proceeds by observation, analysis, and at times experiment to arrive at a more distinct or clear account. Margaret Morse Nice would eventually publish her findings in the transaction of the Linnaean Society of New York in 1937 and 1943 under the title Studies in the Life History of the Song Sparrow. The work was subsequently reprinted by Dover Books, is still regularly spoken of as a classic in natural history, and was praised by no less an authority than Ernst Meyer as, quote, the finest piece of life history work ever done. 
Mrs. Nice first met Professor Meyer at the 1931 meeting of the American Ornithologists' Union. Through him, she would come to know Nico Tinbergen and other leading European students of animal behavior and go on to establish a close working friendship with Conrad Lawrence. When it came time to write up her findings on the song sparrow, she cast her work in the language of the Tinbergen-Lawrence School, saying that she followed, quote, the phenomenological method of the description of behavior. You all still read Conrad Lawrence in freshman natural history, yes, no? Too busy with Carl von Frisch and his bees, no longer reading Conrad Lawrence. You've left over Conrad Lawrence to, to the homeschoolers in 11th grade. Okay, well, but half of you read him in homeschool. Mother of Divine Grace curriculum and so on. Okay, look, Conrad Lawrence, he's one of the good guys. Huh? All right. Although this tradition was not directly inspired by Aristotle's biological works, its methodological commitments were in keeping with his conviction that the biologist's target is the complex activity performed by the whole living organism. Indeed, Margaret was consistent in this fundamental orientation. She found her undergraduate courses in biology not to her liking because, as she put it, I did not like to cut up animals. I, I, love, I love this woman. I really... <laughs> totally, totally with her. All right. <clears throat> the subject... I mean, I like to eat animal flesh, you know, but it's the cut... It's the... Yeah, I mean... Yeah, it's the cutting up part. All right. <clears throat> the subject of Mrs. Nice's research was the song sparrow, Melospisa melodia, which in her backyard and then in the neglected land along the Olentangy River was, quote, abundant, well, dis widely distributed, friendly, and attractive. It was also fairly sedentary, easily captured, willing to submit to banding, and untroubled by even daily visits to its nest. And with a modest territory size from half an acre to an acre and a half, the Song Sparrow community was rich in individuals and families over a terrain small enough to be compassed by a busy housewife. In a later chapter of his physics, Aristotle observed that, quote, the possession of understanding and knowledge is produced by the soul's settling down out of the restlessness natural to it. When, when you read physics book seven, did you notice that when you read physics book seven? That's really good. You, read that again. <laughs> the possession of understanding and knowledge is produced by the soul's settling down out of the restlessness natural one good way for a soul to settle down is for a person to sit still. Margaret Morse Nice's habit of sitting was little short of legendary. Her published books are liberally strewn with quotations from her field notebooks such as this one. The babies hatched on May 5th and 6th. I now devoted four hours a day instead of two to watching the birds. And many were the occasions when she gave half or even a whole day to her ornithological vigils. During these sittings, her listening was just as important as her watching. 
One of the remarkable features of the song sparrow is the variation in song from one male to the next. Each male, she wrote, has a repertoire of from six to 24 individual songs, which, with a very few exceptions, are possessed by him alone. This characteristic bestows an individuality on each of the birds unequaled by any other species known to me. Mrs. Nice labored to learn, to document, and even to memorize the songs of the male birds she studied. And that was only the beginning. She kept daily logs of temperature and weather and of the activity of the birds from the first singing of the resident males in early winter to the arrival of migratory females, the establishment of territory, the formation of pair bonds, nest making, egg laying, brooding, hatching, feeding of young, the incidence of brood parasitism by cowbirds, predation by garter snakes, and much else besides. It's all in tables and charts in her book. I mean, it's just unbelievable. All of this careful scrutiny of the song sparrow was accompanied by conversations with living ornithologists, either epistolary or in person at conferences, and by wide reading in the ornithological literature of America, England, and Europe. That her observational work was informed by what may be called a dialectical engagement with the subject is plain from many casual remarks found throughout her books, such as this one. It has been suggested, she said, with admirable delicacy, that when cowbird eggs are present, the song sparrow may lay fewer eggs of her own, but this has not proven to be the case. As Aquinas observed, forms existing in matter are not thinkable in act. I don't think they understood that. <clears throat> Forme autem in materia. <laughs> Forms existing in matter are not thinkable in act. Okay? The what it is to be of a song sparrow does not impress itself upon our minds in the same way that the brown speckles on its breast impress themselves upon our vision. No, there is but one way to come to know the natures of living things and that is by observing them long enough, carefully enough, and critically enough to build up a stable base of experience from which an appreciation of the universal characteristics of the thing emerges. Yes, I'm talking about the phantasms, okay? <laughs> if we can't laugh at the Thomist in speak occasionally, Okay, then we, you know, then, yeah, okay. Then the winter's been too long. <laughs> Thanks to her observational campaign, Mrs. Nice was able to make many new or more accurate generalizations about song sparrows. For instance, she compiled an immense data set about the number of eggs laid per clutch and the number of chicks hatched per brood. The averages were four and three, respectively she arrived at a satisfying general chronology of the development of the song sparrow once hatched. 10 days in the nest, then a week in hiding, then at 17 days able to fly with full independence from the parents following at the four week mark. 
She was sufficiently confident to assert that, quote, it is evident that these song sparrows did not inherit individual songs from their direct ancestors, nor did they learn them during the first four weeks of life, which is really fascinating when you think about that, because that suggests that they kind of make up their own songs, right? It's really interesting. And through the study of mated pairs across a typical breeding season of three nests in succession, she determined that, quote, a song sparrow builds her first nest as quickly and expertly as she does her last, and that there is no evidence of improvement in building more secure nests nor in concealing them more effectively. Although Margaret Morse Nice's published works on the Song Sparrow chiefly involve generalizations of this sort, that is, those that shed light on the what it is to be of a Song Sparrow, her writings also testify to a sort of native good sense that conforms to Aristotle's observation that, quote, those who dwell in intimate association with nature are more able to lay down principles such as admit of a wide and coherent development. Two of those principles are especially prominent in her work, that nature acts for an end and that nature acts always or for the most part. The first of these principles, that animals, in this case, are the kind of thing that acts for an end, I am inclined to take to be self-evident, that is, a truth of experience, that someone well acquainted with nature and untroubled by prior ideological convictions will affirm, as it were, habitually and without much second thought. Uh, in the case of Margaret Morse Nice, we might expect the wife of a professor of physiology to be preoccupied with reductionism. Okay, I mean, he was trained up in reductionism. Yet there is no evidence from her writings that she ever was thus preoccupied. I suspect that all she required to put aside the specter of reductionism, that is, the habit of imagining that animals are machines that are brought to life and made to move by chemical reactions alone, was the moderate dose of Darwinian thinking that she imbibed by her wide reading in the biological literature of the first half of the 20th century. Such a moderate dose was and is compatible with Aristotle's approach to the organism as a functioning whole, as captured by this well-known methodological prescription from On the Parts of Animals. I quote, the fittest mode of treatment is to say a man or an animal has such and such parts because the essence of man is such and such and because they are necessary conditions of his existence or if we cannot quite say this, then the next thing to it, namely that it is either quite impossible for a man to exist without them or at any rate that it is good that they should be there." Close quotation. With Aristotle's prescription in mind, let us consider three passages from Mrs. Nice's studies in the life history of the Song Sparrow. She had found it to be exceedingly rare for Song Sparrow mated pairs to preserve monogamy from one year to the next. It was therefore remarkable to, to her, and I think in, 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 you know, in say, uh, that mated pairs were consistently monogamous within a single breeding year. Okay, so we don't have a lifelong pair bond. Why do we have a summer-long pair bond? You know, worth asking. Here's the explanation that she uh, suggested. 
Faithfulness during a whole season is the rule between song sparrow mates, partly, I believe, because they are so attached to their territories and partly because broods usually overlap so that there is seldom any occasion for a break in the close association of the birds. Birds that leave their territories between broods as house wrens and bluebirds often change mates. In other words, the strong territoriality of the birds, itself presumably a function of optimal foraging behavior, explained their habit of seasonal monogamy by pointing to its usefulness or good. That's the final cause. Yeah, okay. <laughs> A second example is her examination of the tendency of song sparrow nests to begin on the ground and to end up by the third nesting of the season in a bush. Quote, since the birds begin to nest before vegetation has started to any extent, almost the only place where there is sufficient cover for them is the ground. The first nests are usually hidden under tufts of grass, wheat stalks, or thistles, and are often placed on the banks of the ditches. Again, note the moderately Darwinian perspective. It is so moderate that the Darwinian rhetorical tropes, words or phrases like fitness and selective advantage, are left off stage. The plain habit of the creature was to have three broods per mating season for the sake of the perpetuation of the species. In order to fit three month-long breeding cycles within the season and prior to the annual molt, the sparrows began their families early each spring. And this strategy necessitated nesting on the ground for the first nesting. Okay. The third example concerns patterns of behavior that she observed in song sparrow fledglings, which commonly left the nest on the ninth or tenth day after hatching when they could hop and partially feed themselves but not yet fly. The behavioral pattern that surprised her was that during the week between their 10th and 17th day, the chicks were mostly hidden and immobile. Quote, although I have searched time and time again, she wrote, I've seldom been able to find a young song sparrow at this stage thanks to their immobility and protective coloring. Okay, now uh, I, I understand that that doesn't surprise you or me, right? If you or I go out and look for a song sparrow, 12-day-old song sparrow, we don't expect to find said 12-day-old song sparrow. We don't know where to look. We don't know his name. We haven't banded the darn thing, and so on and so forth, right? She, she had memorized the songs of dozens of song sparrows. She's looking for little 12 to, can't, I mean, this is, you know, this thing really knows how to hide. That's her point, okay? The teleological explanation is beautifully implied. To survive during that tender week prior to being able to fly, the chick must hide, and so it does. Now, a second principle of what we might call the philosophy of nature, or following uh, Mr. Augros, a general science of nature, I rather like that phrase, uh, that is present throughout Nice's work, is that nature is a cause that acts either always or for the most part. This is the humble but deeply significant truth that matter is a source of contingency. This truth is a corollary of the one just addressed, that nature acts for an end. It is also a principle that sits well with the conclusion from the science of metaphysics that it is a natural body's form that gives it what Aquinas referred to as its strength of being. 
whereas its matter is irreducibly a potential cause of its decline and corruption. Margaret Morse Nice was unconcerned with purely philosophical questions. She was, however, deeply conversant with the individuality of the song sparrows that she studied so assiduously. That was why she put aluminum and plastic bands on the legs of so many birds. Quote, the object of the banding is to individualize the birds. Throughout her writings on the song sparrow, she is continually amazed by the tendency of the birds to vary, sometimes widely, from one bird to the next, and without any appreciable cause, either on the side of material necessity or for the sake of an end. In many cases, of course, she recognized that the variations she saw came about by chance, as when a cowbird laid her eggs in this sparrow nest rather than that one, or a mower disturbed this grassy sward and not the other. Yet there were other cases in which convergent lines of causation did not seem to be in play. For instance, over the eight years of her study and the more than 100 nests of fledglings that she banded and followed, she found that song sparrow siblings unaccountably varied with respect to whether they remained along the Olentangy or migrated south for the winter. There simply was no discernible pattern of where brother and sister song sparrows would settle. So same nest, but one migrates, the other stays resident. With respect to male song sparrows, she found that some kept their territory from one year to the next, but not all of them. Again, without there being any discernible pattern. And she had a big data set within which to appreciate patterns. Okay? And that the timing of the onset of singing in the winter, quote, also depends on the individuality of the bird, some males starting to sing much earlier than others. Female birds also unaccountably varied. She was interested in the variation in their temperaments. One of her female birds was so extraordinarily shrewish that Mrs. Nice named her Xantippe. And another female she branded as lazy, right? a slattern, as Jane Austen might have described her. Uh, had to get Jane Austen in there somewhere. <laughs> Just had to. Do you remember which mother in which novel was described as slatternly? Hmm. Okay. That's okay. It's, it's all right. That's right. Mansfield Park is not on the official reading list. It's okay. Okay, uh, where was I? The slatternly female uh, song sparrow. She, uh, she um, abandoned her, her egg, her own egg. She abandoned her egg after Mrs. Nice had done her the favor of removing four cowbird eggs that had been laid in her nest, right? So this was, Mrs. Nice thought this was bad motherhood. Finally, some aspects of mating behavior were so rare as to be signs of contingency, including remating from one year to the next, which she saw only eight times over eight years, or less than 4% of the possible matings, and bigamy, which she saw a total of four times, so that would be 2%. The overall conclusion is plain. The careful observer of nature will come upon patterns of activity that obtain not quite 
always, but instead, for the most part, nature is like that. As we take our leave of Mrs. Nice, let us reflect upon her as one who dwelt in intimate association with nature, in Aristotle's happy phrase. The text of her great work, the two-volume Studies in the Life History of the Song Sparrow, is dry and liberally interspersed with tables and charts. In the short popular work that she wrote on her observational campaign, however, we find some indications of her character and habits of mind. Here and there in that book, which is called The Watcher at the Nest, Mrs. Nice lifted the veil ever so slightly with statements such as this one. I quote, the meadow resembled one of Fra Angelico's flower-spangled paradises. And this one. I became motionless while mosquitoes settled over my face. I felt like Saint Macarius, who inadvertently crushing a gnat and thereby missing an opportunity of enduring mortification patiently, stationed himself for six months in the marshes of Skeet. <laughs> this is the product of a liberal education, okay? This is a, this is a well-rounded woman. Here was a woman who was well-read in multiple languages, well-traveled, and eminently thoughtful. She was also an attentive and dutiful mother to the amazement of the authors of a recent history of ornithology. This was uh, 10,000 birds, ornithology since Darwin, published in 2014. And the authors of that book, multiple, multiple author volume, uh, are amazed, and they, they say something about her impact upon the field is all the more remarkable given that she was raising five children at the time. Well, they didn't really know she was only raising four children at a time because one of them had died young because they didn't read everything she wrote. Be that as it may. Uh, Mrs. Nice did not look at her own life the same way that the authors of this history of ornithology did. In fact, she credited her study of her daughter's development of speech with enabling her, with training her in close observation and clear thinking. And in fact, if you were to commit the venial sin of Googling Margaret Morse Nice, uh, these, these published studies of the speech development of children are still, are still available, right? I mean, it was serious work in cognitive psychology, okay? Margaret Morse Nice truly lived in intimate association with nature, human and non-human, and therefore came to know much about it. One of these, one of these is open. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Ile qui demonstrat auditorum scientiam facit. This crisp statement of Aquinas aptly sums up the life and labors of Betty Flanders Thompson. That was nasty of me. The one who demonstrates, the, <laughs> the one who demonstrates makes the one who hears to know. The one who demonstrates makes the one who hears to know. Isn't that beautiful? It's really great. 
This crisp statement of Aquinas aptly sums up the life and labors of Betty Flanders Thompson, born in 1913, died in 2004. Miss Thompson, as she was known, was awarded a PhD from Columbia University and then from 1943 to 1976 served as professor of botany at Connecticut College in New London, an easy two-hour drive from here. In addition to teaching two generations of young women in classroom, greenhouse, and arboretum, Ms. Thompson was the author of two splendid books of natural history, The Changing Face of New England, 1958, and The Shaping of America's Heartland, 1977. Our attention will be limited to the earlier work, which includes many details of interest to those living in the valley of the Connecticut River. Before examining how Miss Thompson's writings show her to have been an excellent teacher, we will pause to consider a wonderful little document that put her dialectical acumen on display, a letter to the editor of Science Magazine, published in the October 15, 1965 issue, under the title, Plants and Animals, Vive la Différence. Her letter was prompted by an everyday expression of the reductionist impulse that she had found buried in a book review in the September 10th issue of the same journal. The reviewer had written, I have come increasingly to wonder if the unity that undoubtedly exists on the biochemical and cellular levels actually exists to anything like the same extent when the higher plants and animals are reached. Close quotation. It is to Ms. Thompson's credit that her immediate reply to this curious confession was gently ironic. May this modest seed of doubt, she wrote, burgeon into a long overdue general recognition that a plant is something other than a rudimentary version of an animal. She did not rest her case there. With impeccable Aristotelian, or should you prefer it, Darwinian principle, she called attention to the fact that, quote, uh, not that Aristotle and Darwin agree about everything, mind you, eh? but they, they occasionally agree, and when they do, it's sort of useful to bring them together. Huh? Uh, okay, they agree about two things, I understand, but that, that's... <laughs> okay. <clears throat> she called attention to the fact that, quote, in their lives as whole organisms, Plants face major problems that are of no great consequence for animals, just as animals have large problems that do not amount to much in the lives of plants. As examples, she adduced water balance in plants and the elimination of waste products of digestion in animals. You know, we do say that I'm, I'm thirsty, I'm limping a little bit because I need to drink, but I don't actually lose vapor pressure in my arm, you know. <laughs> The house plant that loses its turgor, its vapor pressure, right? It just goes, right? So it becomes the kind of doctors, the Charlie Brown, you know? Yeah, water balance. That's what she's talking about. All right. 
and, and I know that plants have stomata and that the, the waste products of, of, of you know, cellular respiration are expelled and gases form. She knew that too, okay? She knew that too, right? Uh, but as a generalization, it's a reasonable generalization, right? These are, this is a, water, water balance is a very serious problem for plants. It's like practically problem number one if you're not a cactus, all right? And uh, <laughs> uh, I live in Colorado. It's a desert, so I'm sort of aware of these kinds of things. But uh, in any event, uh, you know, in the elimination of waste products and of uh, the digestion in animals, well, you know, if you've ever dealt with a dog, you know what she's talking about. All right, so she pursued her argument by noticing that in spite of manifest similarities at the molecular level, plants and animals differ markedly in their, quote, entire structure, organization, and physiology. She then added an evolutionary consideration by pointing to the, quote, increasingly clear and multifaceted divergence between animals and plants that one sees across the long history inscribed in the fossil record as the inhabitants of the animal kingdom have become progressively more deeply committed to going out and getting their food and those of the plant kingdom more committed to sitting tight and synthesizing. It's a good, good writer, yeah. In spite of the fact, she noted wryly, that, quote, some of the protista inconveniently confuse things by still failing to take a stand on the matter. Close quotation. The conclusion to her letter was spirited. By all means, she wrote, let us recognize the amazing unity of life where it exists, as well as the different levels of organization within the world of life. But let us not raise up a generation of biologists who know all about molecules and cells, and perhaps even communities, but who know so little about the lives of whole individual organisms that they do not comprehend the ways in which plants are fundamentally different from animals. Now, if you did not have me here to tell you otherwise, you might think that these words were written by Dr. Marie George, an early and distinguished graduate of Thomas Aquinas College, California, who has been contending for this very point in an ongoing exchange with Father Nicanor Ostriaco. Be that as it may, Ms. Thompson's letter to the editor of Science tells us that she is a worthy comrade for Mrs. Nice. We will consider Ms. Thompson with respect to three excellences that characterize the teacher's art. The ability to lead students by the hand along the path of discovery. The ability to demonstrate and thus to present reasoned out knowledge in an orderly fashion. And the habit of weighing critically the sources of our knowing and of considering the implications of our knowledge. That's a Third is a twofold one. A native of Ohio, Miss Thompson first came to the Connecticut River Valley when she, like Margaret Morse before her, matriculated at Mount Holyoke College. As a young woman, she was already observant and quick to admire. I quote, soon I became very curious about the great expanses of rather scraggly looking youngish woods that nobody seemed to care much about. 
This was all very different from the small farm woodlots widely scattered over the highly cultivated landscape of the Middle West where I grew up. Right? Now the explanation of that difference is going to be in terms of human culture rather than strictly biological matters, but nevertheless, she's noticing differences and asking why. She also taught in such a way as to elicit a lively desire to know in her students. Consider this description of the view from the top of Mount Holyoke, right? So down there, way 30 miles south of here. As you stand on the rocky crest, the Connecticut River lies directly below. Your eye can follow it as it comes out of the hills to the north. Close your eyes and, and imagine yourself on top of Mount Holyoke, okay, with 91 down and to the left. And, you're looking out. You can, your eye can follow it as it comes out of the hills of the north, slips through the gap between Mount Holyoke and Mount Tom to the west, and glides on southward across an even wider lowland to Springfield and beyond. Near the base of the mountain lies an oxbow lake, which dates from about 1830. Just to the north of it are two sharp meander loops that will someday become oxbows in their turn. One loop is nibbling at the northern edge of the village of Hadley, and at the same time adding to a peninsula that reaches east from Northampton. If the light is right, you can detect the curving swales where the river once flowed and where even now it washes in at flood season. Right, as you come north from Hartford, these are Hadley is the first place you see agricultural fields. And you look over to the right of Route 91 and Mount Holyoke is sitting up over these pretty fields where before, you know, 10 miles to the south it's been just woods and suburbs, right? So the, the view that she's talking about, you can still see today. She continues, if the flood stages of the river are hard to imagine, stop when you go down to the highway again and look for a signpost at the roadside a little way to the north that shows the high water levels of various recent floods. As you stand on the pavement, some of the marks are higher than your head. Now turn all around and see what a mighty lake this valley holds in flood time. It is evident from this passage that Miss Thompson was an experienced and gifted interpreter of nature in the field. As the changing face of New England progresses, it offers further evidence of this skill as Miss Thompson takes her readers to the upper slopes of Mount Washington, the Alpine Garden, right? You climb up the Amanusa Gravine Trail, the Lake in the Clouds hut, and you start to walk, yes? Have you, yeah, well, no? Okay, yes. More of you need to do that, right? Alpine Garden. To the sand dunes of Nantucket, to bog and beaver ponds, to old forests and recently abandoned fields. Whether she was describing New England's celebrated fall leaves, the harvest of maple sap, or the ways and means of the two storm tracks that converge over New England and cause its characteristic weather patterns. Did I say patterns? Uh, <laughs> Miss Thompson wrote clearly and colorfully. I think it must have been a sheer delight to listen to her speak and to respond to her promptings to attend first to this and then to that feature of the natural world. Once the teacher has led the student by the hand to the appropriate targets, her next task is to point out the right order in which they should be considered. This is the work of demonstration to lay down first one and then another statement so that the third may follow as a conclusion and follow from them 
not willy-nilly, as sun and rain sometimes seem to follow one another in the hills of Massachusetts, but in an orderly way, with predicate joined to subject by a middle term that is truly the cause of our knowing. It is unlikely that Ms. Thompson had the benefit of a careful reading of the prior analytics during her years at Mount Holyoke, but it is apparent that she was able to syllogize accurately to a good purpose and with admirable economy and elegance. Let us savor her skill as a demonstrator. This is my favorite part. I want to be her when I grow up, so. <clears throat> when the young trees are up above the grass tops, they make patches of shelter from the scorching sun where other plants can get a start. And soon, clumps of shrubby vegetation grows beneath and a little to the north of each group of trees where its shadow breaks the fiercest midday sunshine. Although this may sound like mere description, it is actually an argument, and it falls neatly into Barbara. Shelter from the noonday sun is beneath and a little north of each group of the trees that are the first colonizers of a field. Shrubs are found where there is shelter from the noonday sun, therefore, Shrubs are found beneath and a little to the north, and etc. Quod erat demonstrandum. Just like Euclid. Here's the second one, which, like the first, begins with a statement of the middle term. That is, of the reason why the major term will be said of the minor in the conclusion. In these natural grasslands, it is primarily wetness that keeps out the trees. Tidal marshes are flooded twice every day and with salt water at that. None of the trees that grow in our climate can live under such conditions. This discourse is easily shaped up into proper form as a chelerant. No trees intolerant of inundation can live in tidal marshes. All trees of New England are intolerant of inundation Therefore, no trees are found in the tidal marshes of New England. There are also other examples of other moods and figures. While preparing this lecture, I amused myself by reducing one argument to disamis in the third figure and another to ferio in the first. But let us conclude our survey of Miss Thompson's syllogizing with an interesting argument that begins with a statement of its conclusion. It's the kind of thing Aristotle does all the time throw a conclusion out, then maybe give a reason for it and expect you to be able to reconstruct this. <laughs> Thank you, master of those who know. I mean, who came up with that? <laughs> <clears throat> Tobacco is grown on the same land continuously with no rotation of crops. Oddly enough, the yield of tobacco is lower following some other crop, apparently, because of an increase in the prevalence of root rot disease. After a little puzzling out, one finds that the argument falls naturally into Barbara. Tobacco's yield is highest in fields where it is grown continuously without rotation. Tobacco is grown, or tobacco is planted, where its yield is highest. Therefore, tobacco is grown on the same land continuously. 
Now, strictly speaking, her argument is an enthymeme and not a syllogism. It does not turn on knowledge of the cause, but instead on knowledge of an accompanying effect or sign, in this case, the high yield. That Miss Thompson used the qualifier apparently when speaking about the prevalence of root rot in fields where tobacco was alternated with other crops shows, at least to me, that she knew that the argument was inconclusive. And that example brings us to her third and final excellence as a teacher, Miss Thompson's care in examining both the sources and the implications of her knowledge. In a number of passages in The Changing Face of New England, she took pains to discuss the hypothetical and theoretical character of much science. Whether treating the ecology of alpine plants on Mount Washington, the anomalies of the apparent shoreline of the lake that once covered much of the upper Connecticut River Valley, or the process by which geologists believe fossil footprints to have been preserved, she wrote with precision and care, avoiding the two extremes of a skeptical or stubborn unwillingness to feign hypotheses and of credulity in the face of rhetorical bluster by scientists who make stronger claims than their evidence and strength of argument allows. As to the further implications of the knowledge of nature, the reader of The Changing Face of New England notes that Betty Thompson consistently had the good of human beings in view. This is a book about the geological history, climate, soil, flora, and fauna of a distinctive and remarkably beautiful region, but it is also and preeminently a book about how New England has been a home to men and women and their families. Early on, she was keen to dispel a widespread myth that is allied to the environmentalist primitivism of Henry David Thoreau. I quote, contrary to what many people believe, she declared, there is nothing inherently wrong with the fertility of New England's soil. Close quotation. Right, if you read enough of the transcendentalists, you get the impression that New England's better off going back to the primitive woods, right? Because it's somehow destined for that, right? And, and actually, uh, New England is a, is a good deal, well, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island anyway, a good deal more uh, uh, fertile than a place like Colorado, okay? So you just need micro-agriculture techniques with small tractors and drip irrigation and so forth, and then you get great yields. All right, and the work culminates with a chapter entitled New England's Farmlands that includes appreciative discussions of the culture of blueberries and potatoes in Maine, cranberries on the coast of Massachusetts, tobacco in the Connecticut River Valley, and apple orchards and dairy farms throughout. She defended the mechanization of dairy farming with her characteristic gentle irony. Let the sentimentalist who is willing to walk five blocks from his parked car and run his office without any business machines, even typewriters, cast the first stone. And she reserved some of her loveliest prose for a common feature of the New England cultivated landscape, the small farmer's stand of timber. I quote, perhaps the reader would like to know how to recognize a good small forest when he sees one. In the first place, both fires and cattle are strictly excluded. The ground is covered with a litter of twigs and leaves with a good layer of decomposing humus beneath it. There are no overripe or weed trees and no diseased, damaged, crooked, or wolf trees. This last is an individual that spreads its own crown so widely that it suppresses its neighbors over a considerable area. 
Every tree not destined for the harvest has a function, either as a future replacement or else as a trainer to inhibit side branches on the larger trees. Good trees may even be pruned of their lower branches in order to prevent the formation of knots and eventually to produce one or two log lengths of solid clear wood. Leafy crowns are well developed along the top third of the larger trees. In an even aged stand, the crowns almost touch to form a closed canopy with nothing growing beneath them. The woodlot produced by intensive silviculture, Ms. Thompson concluded with a gardener's eye for beauty, is a pleasant as well as a productive place. Right? This, is, this is showing how she, she understands what the ultimate destination of science of any kind is, right? Omnia ars et scientia, uh, as Aquinas says, uh, every art and science uh, is ordained to one end, namely beatitude, right? That's from the premium of the metaphysics commentary. And she understood that point instinctively, right? So she's, so a book, a book on New England science wouldn't be, or a New England landscape is not complete until we talk about how the landscape supports human communities. It's a very beautiful book in that regard. Uh, this bit about the uh, pretty woodlot, the well-cared-for garden-like woodlot, was not, however, her last word about New England's woods. I quote, It is not a spiritual substitute for a truly natural wild forest, but it makes a handsome addition to New England's array of cropland scenery. Those who have walked through the beech groves on the slopes of Mount Monadnock, yes, the beech groves, yes, you said the be beech groves, right? You, you got out your knife and you put, you know, Jim and then a heart and then Jane, and, right? The beech groves on the slopes of Mount Monadnock or hiked the wilderness trail along the Pemigewasset River. It's a great trail. We'll understand Miss Thompson's preference for the wilder forests of New England. Right? We don't have to write her off as Thoreauvian because she liked to go hiking in New England. Okay. To conclude, huh? Aristotle wrote in reverent tones when he sought to encourage in his students a desire to know about the natures of plants and animals. I quote, as Heraclitus, when the strangers who came to visit him found him warming himself at the furnace in the kitchen and hesitated to go in, is reported to have bidden them not to be afraid to enter, as even in that kitchen divinities were present. So we should venture on the study of every kind of animal without distaste, for each and all will reveal to us something natural and something beautiful. Close quotation. The biology to which he invited his students was rooted in the first-hand observation of plants and animals as living wholes and proceeded as an orderly examination of their causes, as best as he could figure them out, eh? including their ends or purposes. Today, biology begins with cells and molecules, treats whole organisms as mere amalgamations, and sets aside any consideration of the goodness or beauty of the organism, its usefulness to man, except as cut up and run through a blender and then useful to us, okay, or the mysterious traces of divine causality that can be appreciated in it in favor of, what, what do we get from um, biology today? Grand retellings of the evolutionary story or anxious discussions of environmental concerns. Whereas in genetics and bioengineering laboratories, biology is being transformed from a science into an art of making whatever may be imagined, 
Elsewhere in our culture, biology risks being reduced to rhetoric and often to bad rhetoric at that. If biology is to remain a science of living things, then it must recover what C.S. Lewis called, quote, a new natural philosophy. This is, again, from The Abolition of Man, 1944. That is, an awareness that, quote, the natural object produced by analysis and abstraction is not reality, but only a view, and always corrected the abstraction. Right? Recognizing that it's an abstraction and then correcting for the abstraction, that's what Lewis is calling for. Lewis admitted that he hardly knew what he was asking for. But he knew at least that, quote, when this new natural philosophy explained, it would not explain away. When it spoke of parts, it would remember the whole. Its followers would not be free with words only and merely. In a word, it would conquer nature without being at the same time conquered by her and by knowledge at a lower cost than that of life, close quotation. What C.S. Lewis described is what you are being introduced to here at Thomas Aquinas College and what Margaret Morse Nice and Betty Flanders Thompson practiced as an ornithologist and a botanist who dwelt in intimate association with nature. Thanks for your attention.